Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober, right here on Green Earth Radio. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. We've got a great show for you today. It's our final show for Meat Lovers May. In previous weeks, we've found that there are places you can find affordable meat that's also sustainable, as well as found out how to properly cook grass-fed beef. For our last episode, we'll be talking to Chris Masterjohn about the myth of cholesterol and health. Plus, our desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to our appetizers and find out what happened this week in the world of real food. First, California lettuce grower River Ranch has ordered a nationwide recall. The bagged salads were detected with listeria contamination, which can lead to high fever, headache, and neck stiffness. In related news, Taylor Farms is recalling packaged spinach on the USDA findings that salmonella was in one of the packages. These recalls are a reason why I always buy my lettuce and spinach fresh as well as organic, as both lettuce and spinach fall into the dirty dozen list of foods sprayed with tons of pesticides. Next, as foie gras is set to be banned in California on July 1st, the Coalition for Humane and Ethical Farming Standards, known as CHEFs, has proposed new rules requiring the ducks to be raised cage-free and feed them in a way that doesn't hurt the duck's esophagus or beak. As you know, I'm strongly opposed to the foie gras ban. We need to change how the ducks are raised, but not prohibit the delicacy altogether. I support any type of animal being raised on pastures and would like to see the ducks walk up to eat their food instead of being force-fed the foie gras, the feedings through a tube. Also, Mark McAfee, founder of the raw dairy producer Organic Pastures, has reported that L.A. and San Diego County government health officials are starting to track down customer names and addresses of people that have the raw milk delivered to them and demand that the buyers confiscate their raw milk. Now, this is a violation of our rights on so many levels. Raw milk sales are legal in the state of California. The customers are happy with purchasing real milk, and they haven't had any problems consuming it. And finally, this past Thursday, amendments to the Food and Drug Administration user fee reauthorization bills went before the Senate. While the amendments of disarming FDA agents and ending raids on natural food stores and Amish farms didn't get passed, the bill does force the FDA to accept dates from clinical investigations being done overseas. Sorry, data from clinical investigations being done overseas. It's a stop. It's a start in the right direction for the FDA to start changing its practices. And now for our main course. Our last, this is our last main course for Meat Lovers May, and it's the myth of cholesterol and health. Now, we've all grown up hearing that meat contains cholesterol, it leads to heart disease, and many other illnesses. But what if this information we've been hearing for over half a century is incorrect? Are you skeptical to what I'm saying? Let's look at what the scientists who have told us that cholesterol is bad from Ansel Key's lipid hypothesis in the 1950s to T. Colin Campbell's China study last decade, both of these findings involved cherry-picking data to fit how Keyes and Campbell wanted them to. And despite the China study's title, it's an observation, not a study. Both works are only hypotheses, 
and there's no universal consensus about them in the scientific community. And then there are the vegetarians and vegans who oppose eating animal products for ethical reasons, but they argue health to avoid meat, eggs, and dairy. There are many flaws in the arguments not to consume cholesterol. Along with biased people researching the effects of cholesterol, we've also overlooked how processed foods such as white flour, sugar, vegetable oils could be the cause of heart disease, strokes, and diabetes. Here to discuss, discuss with me the myth behind cholesterol and health is Chris Masterjohn, a grad student at the University of Connecticut pursuing a PhD in nutritional science with a concentration in biochemical and molecular nutrition. Chris, it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Aaron. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Well, I love what you're doing. I mean, it fits perfectly with the show, with what I talk about, I mean, almost every week on the show, since most of the topics, I mean, with the name Appropriate Omnivore, we do talk certainly a lot about meat. And I mean, just, you know, what I believe outside of the show that I talk about on my blog and just in general. And I mean, it's, it's wonderful that, that you're doing the study and that. So I appreciate um, you coming on the show for this. This is, I think, what better way to close Meat Lover May than to tell them very much why, you know, you shouldn't avoid meat or at least, you know, shouldn't avoid cholesterol. Meat is one source of it along with eggs and dairy. So tell the listeners a little bit about how you got interested in studying the whole link between cholesterol and health. Sure. Well, first of all, let me just say that I'm an omnivore and I love being appropriate. So I nice. also think that being on your show is perfect for me. Uh, in any case, uh, I got, I mean, I've always been interested in health. I, I was especially got interested in health as a teenager uh, because my mom had gotten into a lot of health problems and she uh, through discovering alternative medicine and a number of other uh, things that, you know, she was able to overcome some of her health issues, so that really inspired me. Uh, and I, you know, I, I had my own experiences with health as a teenager, but uh, what really got me interested in focusing on health as sort of a central part of my career and a central part of my um, academic studies was my own experience, especially with vegetarianism, around the age of 18, I had become a vegetarian and then about six months later a vegan. And I had been convinced based in part uh, on the arguments for health, in part on the arguments for uh, ecology and environment, and in part on arguments for animal rights. Uh, but I found that my health deteriorated, uh, especially the onset of uh, tooth decay, uh, great acceleration and aggravation of anxiety disorders that I had had since a teenager, uh, and a lot of other problems, digestive problems and so on. And I eventually encountered the work of Weston Price, and uh, we can talk about him a little bit later, but suffice it to say for now that he had documented the nutritional transition from traditional diets to refined foods, what he called the displacing foods of modern commerce, all around the world in many populations in virtually every inhabited continent with the one exception of Asia, which he was unable to visit because of the onset of World War II as far as I understand it. And he had not only uh, consistently showed that over and over again the uh, transition to modern refined foods resulted in the onset of physical degeneration and even an association between this physical degeneration and mental de degeneration as well. Uh, but he had also documented that all of the successful groups who had vibrant health on their traditional diets 
placed special value on animal sources of the fat-soluble nutrients. And this was sort of a revelation to me because these were the very foods that I was avoiding in order to become more healthy. Uh, so it occurred to me that perhaps uh, you know, my declining health was actually a result of that decision to exclude those foods from my diet. And Price's work especially resonated with me because one of my main problems was tooth decay. And although he was trying to document physical degeneration in all of its manifestations, he was a dental researcher, so he paid a special attention to uh, tooth decay and dental deformations. Uh, so this work really really made me open up my eyes and really made a light go off in my brain and said maybe I should start, uh, you know, revising some of my ideas of how to be healthy and uh, including, not just including meat, but also focusing more on the nutrient-dense animal foods uh, like organ meats and uh, broths made from bones and, and all of these, uh, you know, less sort of standard animal foods uh, became a focus of mine, and it really caused a revolution in my health. So at the time, I had been finishing up a bachelor's degree in history, but that really made me want to do something to do with uh, with health for my career. I thought about medical school for a while, uh, and in fact, when I first started studying uh, sciences at the undergraduate level after I graduated with a degree in history, it was because I was preparing to go into medical school. But over the course of that, uh, I, I decided that research was really where uh, I could make my best contribution and a number of other friends and colleagues uh, also uh, sort of corroborated my view that that was the right path for me and so that's how I wound up where I am right now. Wow, that's amazing and certainly Weston A. Price's findings when he went all over the world, it's very amazing and certainly learning about it about maybe almost a year ago, I mean it's it's had a lot of effect on how I had changed my diet because I'd always been about eating sustainably, but it was a thing of certainly some foods that I thought were sustainable, like realizing that organic vegetable oil is not really that sustainable or healthy for you. And it's, it's, it's changed my ways a lot too. Now, you had mentioned about tooth decay as far as health. Were there other health concerns that you had too when you were doing the vegan diet? Uh, well, in my personal experience, and, I, and I'll be the first to admit that uh, my experience is not the same as everyone else's experience, but uh, tooth decay was probably the most surprising thing just because of the extent of it. I don't even remember how many cavities I had, but it was at least 12 and I needed two root canals. So that was sort of a shocker because uh, I, you know, my, I had thought, well, animal protein causes... Um, acidity in the body, which causes leaching calcium from the bones and teeth. So I figured, hey, if I go vegan, then, you know, I'll probably never get osteoporosis and my teeth will be perfect. So that was the most shocking thing just because it was so incredibly uh, distant from, you know, what happened was so incredibly different from what I had expected. Uh, there were other things. Uh, my, I had anxiety disorders from the time that I was uh, in my say, early teens, and they had gotten much, much worse while I was vegetarian and vegan. And when I made changes to my diet uh, to try to heal my tooth decay, I spontaneously sort of found that uh, my anxiety disorders basically disappeared. So it was a total surprise to me because I didn't really expect diet to have that much effect in that area. And there were some other things like uh, lack of energy and digestive issues and so on. Uh, but the anxiety problems and the tooth decay were the most dramatic uh, 
changes that occurred for, uh, because of my changes in diet, whether the onset of those uh, problems or their disappearance when I changed my diet, again, in accordance with the principles of Weston Price. The, uh, the anxiety kind of reminds me of how on the Weston A. Price's site, it says right on the front page of their website, they're happy because they eat butter. And of course, underneath <laughs> it, it says they also eat plenty of raw milk, cream, cheese, eggs, liver, meat, cod liver oil, seafood, and other nutrient-dense foods that have nourished generations of healthy people worldwide. And certainly the cavities is interesting. My friend Reith Soothan, who does the blog Let Them Eat Meat, he also told me about when he was vegan, he had a lot of cavities and he said he hated going to the dentist. I mean, he even kind of uh, got this idea that vegans hate dentists because of his experience with it. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I, I've met Reese. I think he's a great guy, and, and Reese and I are not the only people who have had tooth decay on a vegan diet. There are other people who don't get tooth decay on a vegan diet, so it's, you know, everyone has their particular vulnerabilities, but definitely for a, de- definitely I'm not the only one, and there's a subset of us who are prone to, to tooth decay on a vegan diet for sure. And a vegetarian diet also, Anne-Marie Michaels, who runs Real Food Media and the Cheese Slave blog, she said when she was a vegetarian, she had cavities. So it's certainly – it is a shocking thing. It's um, It partly goes with the thing that, I mean, dentists and physicians, they're not taught nutrition. And so it's, I think that's partly kind of why we're not aware of what causes these because, I mean, really a lot of these professions like dentists and physicians, they're really more about curing it. I mean, they know how to treat a cavity, but – they don't know as much of what to advise on how to do it because, I mean, I know very well, they know small how part to treat of the school a, is, is about nutrition. They know how to treat a cavity surgically, but they don't know how to treat a cavity nutritionally at Weston Price. Right. And it wasn't just Weston Price also. Edward Mellenby, who is a very prominent figure early in nutrition, had both shown that you can reverse tooth decay uh, with a nutrient-dense diet without performing surgery on the teeth. And uh, I've seen some, you know, at most uh, in dental textbooks that I've seen, I've seen a mention that uh, spontaneous healing of cavities sometimes occurs and no one really knows why. Uh, But as far as I know, no one has actually taught anything about this in dental school. No. So I I concur that nutrition is pretty much absent from these medical professions. Right. And a lot of dentists don't know who Weston A. Price was. I've certainly asked some and they haven't been familiar with the name. Um, now, which, is of, which is, of course, bizarre because Weston Price was the first research director of the American Dental Association's Research Institute. He did animal research for 25 years uh, and he um, by 1915, he had uh, published 150 scientific papers, and when he b- began this official position, which he continued for uh, another 10 years, uh, continuing this 25 years of uh, experimental research, uh, he had a team of 60 scientists working under him. He had a team of 18 scientific advisors that included uh, famous people from every scientific discipline, including Charles Mayo, the founder of the uh, Mayo Clinic, Victor Vaughn, the president of the American Medical Association, and many others. And by the time he finished this research in the 1920s, he published two volumes uh, that were uh, about 1,200 pages in total, in addition to his hundreds of scientific papers. So Weston Price was 
by no stretch of the imagination an obscure figure in dentistry. He just has been buried in the annals of forgotten history over the course of the 20th century, and it, uh, you, you would think it must have been a deliberate forgetting, given how prominent he was in the early days. He was, and now going with, because um, certainly I consider his findings one of the most important, if not the most important, certainly a thing that has been a study that has been talked about a lot and is very much the basis for the whole cholesterol myth is the lipid hypothesis with Ansel Keys and as as has been pointed out by the Westnay Price and it was pointed out very well in that documentary Fathead about how Ansel Keys, he went to research, I think, about 30 countries, the link up between cholesterol and heart disease and he found that the information didn't fit. There wasn't a direct correlation of more cholesterol, more heart disease. And so he threw out the countries that didn't match, leaving with just like five and seven. And I was always interested, I don't know if you know the answer to this, why was he determined to to find a link between cholesterol and heart disease? And when it didn't fit, why did he feel he needed to cherry pick the day? Because I didn't, like, you know, was he a vegetarian? Was that what he was trying to prove? Uh, sure. I don't know if I can answer all of that. But, I, uh, I, but first, let me make a few clarifications. Uh, so first of all, uh, one thing that I've been stressing for the last four years and everything I write that it, is that it's very important to distinguish between the lipid hypothesis and the diet heart hypothesis, which are closely related to one another but are actually distinct. And this, is, uh, this distinction is often not made, uh, but if we make it, it, it very much helps us uh, get to the bottom of the matter in terms of tracing the historical trends in these ideas. So the, lip, the, the phrase, the lipid hypothesis, was first popularized in 1976 by a man by the name of Pete Ahrens. Pete was his nickname, and Edward Ahrens Jr. was his uh, sort of uh, official name. And uh, it, now the hypothesis uh, dates far long before 1976, but this is when it was first popularized. And it was probably first used in print a couple of years before that by Daniel Steinberg, uh, but definitely Pete Ahrens uh, popularized it. And the lipid hypothesis says that if we lower blood cholesterol levels, regardless of how we do it, we will lower the risk of heart disease. Now, this idea is very closely related to the idea or the hypothesis that it's the level of the amount of cholesterol in the blood that determines your risk of heart disease. In fact, it's basically the clinical implication of that cause and effect relationship. So if you believe that the more cholesterol you have in your blood, the greater your risk for heart disease, then uh, you, you know, the corollary of that is that if you lower uh, blood cholesterol either with a drug or with a diet or with anything else, uh, then you will lower the risk of heart disease. Now, uh, Ansel Keys didn't come up with this idea, and neither did Pete Ahrens, and neither did Daniel Steinberg. Uh, if you want to trace the origins of this idea, it really goes back to the cholesterol-fed rabbit model, which was published by Nikolai Anichkov and one of his colleagues in 1913. And uh, basically what they showed with the cholesterol-fed rabbit model was that uh, if you feed rabbits cholesterol, their blood cholesterol goes up enormously, uh, enormously and they get atherosclerosis. And over time, this was shown 
in a number of other animal models, but there were some animals like rats and dogs where feeding cholesterol didn't work, but, and, but you know, that's because feeding cholesterol didn't raise their blood cholesterol levels. So if you raised it by some other means, like inhibiting thyroid hormone or something, then you would get atherosclerosis. And Anichkov didn't call this the lipid hypothesis, but, it was, but his hypothesis was the same. It was that the amount of cholesterol in the blood is what causes atherosclerosis or heart disease. And he called it the infiltrative hypothesis. And what he said is that uh, he called it the infiltrative hypothesis, and he, he contrasted it from other theories that he called degenerative hypotheses. These other ideas were that if you harm the blood vessels or you cause some kind of degeneration to the tissue, then that's what makes the lipid accumulate. He said, no, 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 it's an infiltrative thing. The more cholesterol in the blood, that's what causes the infiltration, and any degeneration of the tissue happens because of this infiltration, the root cause being the high concentration of cholesterol in the blood. Uh, so this is the origin of the lipid hypothesis. The diet heart hypothesis, I think we can trace to Ansel Keys, and this was the idea that if you consume a lot of fat, especially it eventually became if you consume a lot of saturated fat from animal fat, this will raise your blood cholesterol and this will contribute to atherosclerosis and heart disease. Now, it's important to distinguish between the two because the lipid hypothesis per se doesn't have anything to do with diet. It's about the lipids in the blood. The diet-heart hypothesis is dependent on the lipid hypothesis because it says that when you eat animal fat, the reason you get heart disease is because your blood cholesterol goes up. So it's definitely dependent on the lipid hypothesis, and that traces back to Anichkov and the cholesterol-fed rabbit. But it is something different because it adds a new layer and says that the reason we're getting heart disease is specifically because we're eating animal fat. So that's, that's the diet-heart hypothesis, and that's what we can trace to Ansel Keys. Now, the reason I think it's important to distinguish between these two things is because, uh, you know, when, in, instead of, if we want to understand the truth, we need, to, we need to sort of understand the fine details because with any hypothesis uh, that comes up, usually if someone, if someone uh, proposes a hypothesis, it's because they had at least some basis for it. And it may be that uh, there are certain elements of the hypothesis that are true and others that are false. And so instead of just saying, well, you know, the, the, what Ansel Keys said is either true or false, uh, we can get a better understanding if we say, well, you know, was Ansel Keys completely right? Was he partly right? Was he right about anything? Was he right about something? And I think that, uh, I, you know, I've written about this in a lot more detail on my website and other places, but I think, you know, the, the big picture is that uh, Anichkov was partly right, that uh, lipids in the blood have something to do with heart disease. However, it's not the amount of lipids that are in the blood. It's not the amount of cholesterol in the blood. It's, it's rather the process of the degeneration of those lipids. Uh, so, you know, he was partly right and he was partly wrong. And this is a key point to understand because when we get up to the point in the 19... Uh, 50s and 60s where Ansel Keys and others start saying that eating animal fat causes heart disease, the sole basis for this conclusion, at least experimentally, was that 
in very controlled laboratory experiments, you could show that if you replaced vegetable oils with animal fat or vice versa, you could make upward or downward changes in blood cholesterol. So if you assume that it's the amount of cholesterol in the blood, then you can assume that that means that changing the amount of animal fat in the diet will change uh, your risk of heart disease. However, if you instead understand that it's not the amount of lipids in the blood, it's the process of degeneration of those lipids, then all of a sudden you have to back up and say, wait a second, just because animal fat changes the amount of cholesterol in the blood doesn't say anything about whether it changes that process of degeneration. So then what you need to do is say, uh, look, we need to study this in more detail. We need to study what uh, causes the degeneration. We need to study in clinical trials, does changing the amount of animal fat in the diet uh, change the risk of heart disease? And in fact, a number of those trials were uh, done to try to prove that, and they weren't at all supportive of this diet-heart hypothesis. Uh, but you are right, definitely, that Ansel Keys was a key player in promoting the idea that uh, dietary fat, especially saturated fat, promotes the risk of heart disease, which I think is uh, best called the diet-heart hypothesis. And in fact, if you look at the history, in 1957, the American Heart Association had taken the conservative approach and said, well, hold your horses. You know, uh, just because animal fat changes the amount of cholesterol in the blood doesn't mean that it changes the risk of heart disease. Uh, but by 1961, the American Heart Association reversed its position and said, if you're at high risk of heart disease uh, because your cholesterol is high or because it runs in your family or because you live a life of uh, a sedentary life full of relentless frustration, they said, then you should replace animal fat with vegetable oil. And if you look at what changed, it wasn't that the state of the evidence had changed. It wasn't that those clinical trials had been finally done to prove that that was true. It was simply that a few people who had originally written the report uh, left the, the committee, and a few people got on the committee, and one of those was Ansel Keys. So definitely he played a very critical role in promoting this idea. As to why he was hung up on this idea, I don't know. I haven't studied his life enough, uh, but I think that part of it was that he had come up with this idea, you know, from what I've read. And, uh, you know, whenever you come up with an idea and it's your pet hypothesis, you like to promote it. That's a part of human nature. Uh, I don't think it's quite accurate that he visited tw the 20 or 30 countries and uh, and uh, sort of hid most of that data. Uh, I think what it is is he had published uh, an association between over the course of six countries, he showed that as the national intake of fat increased, the risk of heart disease increased. And he later went to seven countries and studied them in more detail. The criticism that came out around that time was that he could have taken data from 22 countries and the relationship would have the statistical relationship between national fat intake and heart disease would have still been there, but it would have been much, much weaker. And the question is, why didn't he use all 22 uh, countries? Not that he visited them all, but why didn't he use the data that was available? And I don't think anyone knows the answer to that question. We would have to, be, uh, we would have to enter the mind of Ansel Keys, and no one has done that. Interesting, right? Ansel Keys, it's, just, it's been a little of a mystery as to kind of to why, but I can certainly, and I've certainly wondered that of maybe it was that. I mean, because I believe he got on like the cover of Time, and I mean, he got a lot of fame for doing this because I know there's other cases, there really are a lot of cases of vegetarians and vegans saying that it's bad for your health, but really their motivation is, is ethics because for one, 
speaking of Rhys Soothan, he did a great thing on his blog recently talking about the Seventh-day Adventists and their relation with the American Dietetic Association where – because Seventh-day Adventists for some moral and spiritual reasons, they're against eating animal products and they had formed like their own dietetics group and then they had – a lot of them had ended up getting on the ADA and then – more recently, there was the position paper saying veganism is appropriate for all stages of life. And from what I've heard, a lot of those – the people that wrote that position paper, their reason for supporting veganism was more ethical, but they said that. And there are other groups too of vegetarians influencing health like the CSPI. I've heard it's a lot of vegetarians. And the other one, as we talked about in the 70s, there was the staffer for McGovern when he had the whole – Lipid panel, so that's at least that's at least kind of something that's made me wonder about all this. And I guess I'm interested to know your take of: Do you think that there have been vegetarians and vegans who are against animal protein for ethical reasons, but they try to hide behind the health for it? Uh, I, you know, I think that has to be the case. Uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, the difference between vegetarianism and uh, omnivory has nothing to do with how much animal product you eat. It has to do with whether you eat animal products or not. So if you ate meat once every three months, you wouldn't be a vegetarian. So, you know, if you look at something like the China study where, where uh, T. Colin Campbell says his argument for vegetarianism, vegetarianism is basically that uh, in China you can observe uh, an increase in disease when people move from, say, 2% animal products to 10% animal products. And he has no evidence that if you eat less than 2% animal products, uh, it's going to be any different than if you eat 2 or 3% animal products. But he says, well, it's just easier to completely forego animal products altogether than to eat 2% of your diet as animal products. But that argument is basically preposterous because, uh, you know, the, the risk of uh, – you could – you could dramatically decrease the risk of long-term uh, neurodegeneration on a vegetarian diet if you ate clams once a month. And that would probably, you know, if you, the amount of vitamin B12 you get from eating clams once a month is the same amount that you get uh, by eating beef two times a day. So you could eat, uh, you know, you could eat, that's probably if you ate clams once a month, it would probably be less than 2% of your diet as animal products. But that could be the difference between getting uh, irreversible nervous system degeneration over the course of a couple decades and not getting irreversible nervous system degeneration over, the, over a couple decades. So the, 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 uh, the slippery slope argument uh, that Campbell presents is sort of absurd, and the only explanation that you can come up with that actually supports uh, strict vegetarianism as opposed to eating meat every once in a while is an ethical argument. There's, there's just no evidence whatsoever to support full, full-fledged vegetarianism instead of eating you know, animal products every once in a while. The, the, the only support for that would be ethical. So I do think, but you know, everyone who has an ethical system wants to believe that it's good for people. Uh, you know, I think this is sort of human nature to believe that the things that you believe are good. You know, why would you, if you have an ethical system that says do X, Y, and Z, 
uh, why would you, you know, it would cause some cognitive dissonance if you found out that doing X, Y, and Z causes you to lose your health. So you, you wouldn't, if you did believe in the ethical system, you would want to believe that uh, following it is a good thing to do. So I don't think it's necessarily a uh, sort of a conspiracy or a ploy to hide behind the health argument. I think more probably it's just that if you believe in this ethical system, then you want to believe that it's healthiest to adhere to that ethical system. So you start to look at the science in a very biased manner. If you see contrary evidence, you start to rationalize it away or to ignore it, or you go online and find a refutation of it and you just believe the refutation regardless of what the other side of the argument is. Uh, and then you protect your belief that it's healthy and when you interact with people who don't share your ethical system and you want to share that ethical system with them, then you try to meet them where they are and you try to argue the health aspect because you know, well, maybe they don't believe in my ethical system, but they want to be healthy. So you start to see that as um, you know, the best way to share your ethical system with other people and help them eventually see the light. I suspect that it's more that, you know, because no one wants to believe that they're hiding behind false arguments. It's much more likely for the average person to, you know, if they are hiding behind false arguments, to convince themselves otherwise and to convince themselves that, no, I'm not hiding behind anything. This is what, you know, this is what I really believe, that this is healthiest. But, yeah, I totally would say that you know in in almost every case there's ethical uh that the you know the reason the person belie really believes that when it comes down to the core of their belief it has to be an ethical argument that makes sense and certainly there's the three pyramids of or the three pillars of veganism there's I do it for the animals I do it for the health and then there's I do it for the environment and the environment that meets with a very similar thing because I mean really their argument is only referring to the factory farms, the feedlots where all the waste comes from, I mean the pasture meat, which is recommended by Weston A. Price and recommended on my show, that doesn't have sure. the problems of factory yeah. farms. But it, it again goes to that they they look through it for a very biased way and because they're for not eating meat for the ethical reasons, they also want to believe all about the environment and they don't go and think, well, what about if it's if it's pastured now? Going with that, I kind of wonder T. Colin Campbell's reason for believing all this because, as I recall, he's not – he didn't get so much into veganism for the ethical reasons because I know he supports using animals for testing, which is not a thing for vegans. I mean if, if you asked a vegan, they would say, oh, T. Colin Campbell, he's not a vegan. He's on the plant-based diet. So I don't know if you know this, but do you know at all the reason of why T. Colin Campbell – Found interesting. Uh, you know, well, I, I mean, I don't have any access to universal consciousness that would allow me to enter T. Colin Campbell's mind or heart and understand what motivates him to say the things that he says. I have read his book, The China Study, a couple times, so I can, I can make some inferences from the surface, but I, I want to avoid speculating oh, about sure. what his motivations are. I can say that in the China Study, you know, he has a little sidebar on animal experimentation where he says, you know, look, I know, I realize a lot of people reading this book are, um, are, you know, have ethical opposition to animal experiments. However, think about how many animals will be saved because of this animal research. And you also have to keep in mind that just because T. Colin Campbell believed in animal research 
uh, 30 years ago doesn't necessarily mean that animal that you know T. Colin Campbell, if he were to sort of uh, express his views on animal research, uh, you know, without trying to justify his past experiments, that he would come to that conclusion in favor of it. Now we we don't know that. Um, so you know what? It, so in other words, we don't really. So what does that sidebar mean about his beliefs? Does it mean that uh, the reason he supports the animal research that he did is because he is currently able to rationalize it and say that it has allowed him to prevent the suffering of animals now by converting people to vegetarianism? Or does it mean that he was just presenting that view to ethical vegetarians reading his book so that they would feel more comfortable with it? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. No one can know the answer to that. Uh, but his but what I can say is that his argument, in, you know, the only place where he really talks about the ethics of animal experimentation in his book is where he says that its justification is that it prevents the killing of animals now. Uh, so exactly what that means about his ethical beliefs, I don't know. I do know that he avoids the terms v vegan and vegetarianism in favor of plant-based diet because he's arguing that his argument is health related but that's sort of you know it that's what he says in his book we have no idea what he actually thinks right i remember reading a quote from him now it could have been a while ago so yeah i can't verify when the quote was said i thought i remember him saying that like he wouldn't label himself as a vegan because he does animal testing, but um, I, I can't remember what where the quote came from or yeah, well, where it yeah, was, well, of so course, it's, it's just that it's just that to try to speculate about what he actually sure. believes based on what he says is is sort of you know a little flimsy. I mean, we can only we can only either believe or disbelieve the things he says about his own beliefs and leave it at that. You know, absolutely right, and it is interesting his uh, defense for. Using animals because actually that's what I've always said. Is I said the idea of animal testing is to find cures for both humans and animals. And to be fair, I mean certainly his whole theory about cholesterol I don't agree with, but I actually don't discredit everything he says because I know a big part of the China study is also avoiding processed foods because as he calls the diet he recommends the whole foods plant based diet. And whole foods is for listeners is not a reference to the stores. The term Whole Foods has been around much more before that. So basically, he does recommend avoiding a lot of the similar things that are recommended avoiding in the Weston A. Price Foundation of white flour and refined uh, sugars. He, yeah, he does, but his but he places almost no emphasis on actually decrying the harms of those foods in the book. So oh, you have to realize, I think, there's no question that he advocates a whole foods plant-based diet, but that's that's very different from saying what is the public health impact of the book going to be if you give this book to a thousand you know really probably hundreds of thousands i don't know how many have read the book but it, you know if you give this book to say a hundred americans selected at random from the from the population uh... what you know you have to assume that probably most of them aren't going to implement the ideas in the book in their entirety. They're going to probably implement the ideas that are easiest for them to implement. So does the average person cut out the refined vegetable oil and the bread, or do they cut out the hamburgers and switch to veggie burgers? You know, that's obviously that Campbell can't be blamed for the individual choices of the people reading his book, but 
you know, he, you can't say that this book, there's no question I agree with a lot of stuff that he says in the book, especially about, you know, the influence of, um, the influence of big industry on science and government re- health recommendations and on the importance of nutrition and lifestyle and preventing disease, not just genetics. There's a lot of good things about the book, but its public health impact, I think, is to convince people that animal products are bad for you. And I think he spends a lot, far fewer pages arguing that white bread and refined sugar are bad for you. So, I, so I suspect that the public health imp- impact is going to be primarily to de- decrease people's animal product consumption. But to the extent that he gets people on a whole foods instead of a refined foods diet, then great. I think that's a good thing. Based on what you're saying um, and the people that I've seen that have read the book, read the book, I agree that I think that's often the part that people take more is the part about avoiding animal products. I don't see as many people. For me, it's because – I've read a lot of the columns by blogger Denise Minger who does the raw food SOS right. and it's it's her whole thing of basically deconstructing and uh, you know, T. Colin Campbell's findings and so she often brings that up, emphasizes that part of the – and she also emphasized a number of those other doctors that were featured in Forks Over Knives of, as far as the diet they recommend. But you're right. People don't pay attention to that. What The th- one thing that sticks in their mind is – animal products are wrong. So even like all those doctors on the, a lot of those doctors on the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine recommend avoiding processed foods. The thing that everyone remembers from the PCRM is how they villainize eggs and dairy and meat. Right. And that's partly, well, first of all, I just want to wholeheartedly uh, second your recommendation of Denise Minger's blog. Uh, but anyway, uh, the you know, the thing is that a lot of the, the people, so T. Colin Campbell recommends the whole foods plant-based diet. When you look at some other folks like Caldwell Esselstyn who are in that group, um, they, you know, they, their primary thing is the low fat. And, you know, you look at other people like Furman, uh, Dr. Joel Furman, they're less afraid of the fat and they're, you know, they say to get rid of the starch uh, and in favor, not to totally get rid of it, but to, you know, favor fruits and vegetables and, and foods that are rich in antioxidants and to, you know, to focus on plant, plant food. Uh, and, you know, T. Colin Campbell has said, not really in his book so much, but, uh, in his Amazon reviews, he seems to spend a real lot of time on Amazon. And, uh, actually in a talk that I'd seen, um, that, you know, he's, he is quite skeptical of the refined vegetable oils and even said in an Amazon review that he would support eating coconut oil and palm oil because they're, they're plant products. So you have a lot of different views in um, this sort of whole foods plant-based movement. You know, these are the people who you see their books featured right next to the meat at Whole Foods Market. And these are the people that you see featured in movies like Forks Over Knives. What they all have in common primarily is this sort of animosity towards animal products. Uh, now, uh, you know, mentioning forks over knives, again, there's plenty of great things about that movie, and they do come out against refined flour and high fructose corn syrup and things like that. Uh, but, you know, the, I don't think it's just that people want to take away this uh, sort of... Uh, 
these ideas against animal products from them. It's that that's the overwhelming emphasis uh, in uh, Tico and Campbell and and these uh, and his other colleagues. That that's the over overwhelming emphasis in their work. So it's very easy to read their work and have that come away as the primary thing that they're saying because it's more prominent than the other good things that they say, like get rid of refined foods. Right. And now with the refined foods, is that part of what your study is, is about the, the sugar, the white flour, the vegetable oils, that those are what's, more, what's responsible for our heart disease and strokes, diabetes? Uh, well, you know, it, I mean, it's it's difficult to try to to untangle the causes of all these diseases. M- most likely, these things play a role. There are probably other, uh, you know, and probably not everything is dietary, and certainly there's lifestyle issues, sleep and stress, and other things like that. Uh, what we do know is, you know, if you look at the research of Weston Price, uh, we do know that wherever the displacing foods of modern commerce came in, which were uh, as he itemized them, refined flour, refined sugar, uh, white rice, syrups, jams, canned goods, and refined vegetable oils. Wherever these came in to displace the foods that were in the traditional diet, physical degeneration followed. And that was true, you know, even if, even if he tightly controlled his observations for genetics and all sorts of geographical factors and so on, even in the same, basically the same population groups, uh, again and again, this transition was found. Now, he was primarily documenting tooth decay and uh, dental deformations. To a lesser extent, he documented vulnerability to tuberculosis, and to a much lesser extent, he documented um, cancer, appendicitis, gallbladder issues, cystitis, uh, and various other uh, maladies. And there have been others after him who have tried to take the same approach and look and tried to look for populations free of heart disease. And one thing we do know is that the populations free of heart disease that have been found, uh, for example, the two of the populations that have been studied real well are the Catavans, uh, Pacific Island Group, and the Maasai, a cattle herding tribe from Kenya and Tanzania. And we know that the things that they don't eat are the displacing foods of modern commerce. The things that they do eat are very disparate from one another. For example, the Catavans rely primarily on fish, coconut, starchy tubers, and fruit, whereas the Maasai rely primarily on milk when it's abundant and meat and plant foods the rest of the year. But all the plant foods that they eat are unrefined plant foods and not white flour and sugar and so on. So as a sort of common sense hypothesis, we do know that there's a wide range of uh, whole foods, including animal foods, tropical oils, and, and various things that are said to be bad for us that are consistent with freedom from heart disease and many of these other degenerative diseases, and that the displacing foods of modern commerce, wherever they are found, uh, the modern propensity to have these degenerative diseases is found. So we don't have any evidence that, you know, we have evidence if we look in our population that there are some people who eat these foods and don't get the degenerative diseases, but there's no evidence whatsoever that these foods are consistent with population-wide freedom from the degenerative diseases as we find in the Maasai or the Catavans and other groups, which is really significant because that means that even the most vulnerable, for example, the most genetically vulnerable people to heart disease in those populations are are protected. Uh, What we don't know is exactly why that is. So, for example, if you look at the Maasai, 
you know, another aspect of their society isn't just that they eat a lot of animal fat and a lot of meat and unrefined plant foods. Another aspect is that uh, traditionally they've gone to bed at 8.30 at night, slept for eight hours, and woke up at 4.30 in the morning. So, it, you know, does that play a role in their propensity to heart disease? Uh, there are very spiritual people who value the, you know, the the importance of prayer and the importance of the belief in, uh, that providence is governing their lives and things like this. Does that play a role in their freedom from heart disease? Uh, you know, if you want to sort of go to a, a more absurd extent, both the Katavans and the Maasai are terrified of sorcerers. Maybe, <laughs> maybe fear of sorcery <laughs> protects against heart disease. Who knows? You know, so there's, there are so many confounders. What we do know is that the efforts in randomized controlled trials to prevent heart disease by restricting the intake of eggs or, uh, uh, or you know, substituting vegetable oils for animal fats have failed miserably to prevent heart disease. So we can be relatively certain that that particular theory that animal fat is the cause of these diseases is bunk because those randomized controlled trials have failed miserably and because eating, uh, you know, dietine animal fats are at least consistent with freedom from heart disease at a population level, which is something we don't have in our own society. As to what the specific causes of those diseases are, uh, we have to kind of come up with the best ideas we can about physiology. So in this case, we need to, you know, work into our ideas the short-term uh, experiments in humans that haven't looked at heart disease endpoints, but have looked at how foods and different drugs affect physiology, and to look at animal experiments that aren't done in humans, but have tied dietary and other physiological and metabolic factors to the risk of heart disease. And so uh, the theory that I've developed so far, which is definitely isn't my own theory, but is what I've taken from the experimental evidence that's, that's available, is that the degeneration of lipids in the blood is not the only factor, but a very important factor in the development of atherosclerosis. And uh, this happens basically because, uh, for a few reasons, one is that the metabolic rate is not keeping up in order to keep the metabolism of lipids in the blood going. So what we want is for the lipids in the blood, remember, li the lipid, like say cholesterol is carried in sort of spherical molecules or uh, particles rather called lipoproteins. And those don't only contain cholesterol, they contain fats and fat-soluble vitamins and various other nutrients. What we want those to do is to get where they're going so we can take those nutrients into the cells and metabolize them. Even the cholesterol, we don't, the main purpose of cholesterol is not to sit in the blood, it's to get into the cells so it can be used to make bile acids and sex hormones and, and you know, all these good things. So uh, what we want is a robust metabolic rate with good thyroid status that clears lipoproteins uh, from the blood uh, at a reasonable rate so that they can be metabolized to all these good things that we want, like bile acids and sex hormones. And this not only causes cholesterol to be used for good things, but it also pre prevents the interaction uh, between uh, uh, between these lipoproteins and oxidants and uh, and by preventing their inter uh, the li interaction between lipoproteins and oxidants, 
uh, it also it thus prevents their oxidative degeneration. It, once their oxidative degeneration happens, then the immune system comes along, and to protect the blood vessels, it gathers these damaged lipoproteins and lipids into an atherosclerotic plaque. Now, this is sort of a best scenario because it's the immune system's uh, effort to protect our blood vessels from the toxic effect uh, of oxidized lipids, but you know, so far, several things have been sacrificed. One is that now cholesterol gets trapped in the plaque instead of getting used to make bile acids and sex hormones and other good things. The fat-soluble vitamins uh, that we could use for lots of good things have been oxidized, and so they are no longer available. And then finally, we have this plaque accumulating, and quarantining the oxidized lipids into that plaque may be the best case scenario for the given moment, but that leaves open the possibility that eventually over time, after decades, that plaque will break apart, inflammatory contents will spill out into the blood, it'll cause a clot, and then it'll cause a stroke or a heart attack. So that's the basic sort of physiological theory uh, that we can see. And then I would derive a few dietary and lifestyle conclusions from that. One is that we want to maintain robust thyroid status. So that means, uh, you know, getting a lot of sleep, minimizing stress, getting all the nutrients that we need for good thyroid status. And it also means that we want to minimize uh, the production of oxidants, which, uh, and to get uh, a good uh, intake and balance of antioxidants. So that again comes down to a nutrient and balance, nutrient dense and balanced diet, and also again maintaining robust and good uh, metabolism, having all the nutrients we need for for proper metabolism, uh, eating a diet that is consistent with uh, prevention of obesity, minimizing stress, and all these other damaging things, minimizing exposure to toxins. That uh, that will that will sort of uh, prevent the production of oxidants, it will ensure the good supply of antioxidants, and it will ensure a robust metabolism that keeps these lipids going to where they need to be going so that they don't oxidize. So, uh, yes, I do think that animal foods are important because animal foods supply important nutrients, especially foods like liver uh, that supply uh, you know, B vitamins, coenzyme Q10, coenzyme Q10 is especially rich in heart meat, uh, but liver is also a good source of poic acid, which is an important mitochondrial antioxidant. Also, you know, various minerals, uh, copper, zinc, manganese, iron, uh, selenium, uh, all these things that we can, that animal su- uh, foods are a very important source of these nutrients that we need. Iodine is especially important for the thyroid, not sufficient protein, and so on. Uh, but I, you know, it, it doesn't just come down to a nutrient-dense diet that includes uh, animal foods and plant foods, you know, because plant foods are important sources of antioxidants as well. Vitamin C especially is found in plant foods. But, uh, you know, it's also important to minimize stress uh, and to maximize sleep and, and, and all these lifestyle factors too because, uh, you know, excessive stress really damages the metabolism. And there's probably, uh, there's probably an important role for avoiding uh, exposure to environmental toxins and, and so on and so forth too because these can also damage the metabolism. Well, thank you, Chris. It's been amazing having you on the show, and I love all the information you gave. I really think this was great way to end Meat Lovers May is to, for people to really to learn the truth about the effects of animal products. So it's wonderful what you're doing. So I certainly uh, look forward to more of your findings in the future. And it's been great to have you on. Before you go, please let the listeners know where they can find your website. 
Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Aaron. People can keep up with my work from going to cholesterolandhealth.com. That's cholesterol-and-health.com. You can also just search for my name, Chris Masterjohn, or search for my blog, The Daily Lipid. If you follow me on my blog, you can subscribe to the blog by RSS or by email. You can also... Uh, you know, I put everything that I do, I post on the Daily Lipid, so you can keep up with all my work by subscribing to my blog. You can also follow me on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, and also, if I could ask everyone to just check out my actual stuff on my website, if you really want stuff specifically on cholesterol, uh, if you go to cholesterolandhealth.com, there's a lot of uh, free information that's uh, not part of my blog on cholesterol and health. And I also have special uh, reports there on thyroid toxins in the diet and uh, one on uh, the essential fatty acids. So check out my special reports and, uh, and, and my blog. And, and that's a great way to keep up with all my stuff. Thank you so much for having me on, Aaron. Absolutely. Great to have you on. I look forward to what stuff you put on your blog in the future and love the title, Cholesterol, You Can't Live Without It. And right now we're going to go to our desserts. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Aaron. Mon and now for our desserts, my recommendation on how to live appropriately for the upcoming week. Monday, May 28th, is National Burger Day. The excellent grass-fed beef eatery, The Burger Lounge in West Hollywood, will be giving out gratis burgers from 10.30 a.m. to 11 p.m. The Burger Lounge has a great overall commitment to sustainability from the food it serves to the way the restaurant operates. General Manager Adam Ranella was my first guest on the show way back in February. Also... As I've stated many times in the show, I'm a big supporter of Chef Chris Cosentino. The chef from the Encanto and Pig restaurants will be appearing as the first in a series of chefs for the test kitchen at Helm's Bakery called Private Kitchen. The event will take place on, on Thursday, May 31st at 8.30 p.m., and Chris will feature recipes from his new cookbook, Beginnings, My Way to Start a Meal. Dinner and wine pairings are $90.00. And finally, my foie gras recommendation for the week. With only a little over a month until the ban goes into place, here's another restaurant to check out. Today's pick is in the Ink, is in Ink in the Melrose District. Ink is run by top chef Vegas winner Michael Voltaggio. Voltaggio offers a dish in his current tasting menu that serves foie gras with crisp waffle pieces and smoked maple, along with a couple squirts of hot sauce. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. To find out more about the news, my news stories, my guest, and the events happening this week, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.blogspot.com. Thank you all who participated in Meat Lovers May. Next month is June, which will be Fighting for Fall Month on The Appropriate Omnivore. Our first guest, Rhonda de Felice. This will be on next week, and we'll be talking all about what solutions we see as unsustainable from FAW to many other issues facing the real movement. That's all for now.